This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... He was killed in his home, in the presence of his wife and kids. Very, very tragic indeed. It is well known, uh, no secret that he has been on the list of the people that the state has been after for a long time. That's uh, Zimbabwean academic Ibo Mandaza on the killing of prominent human rights lawyer Tulani Masiko in Iswatini's capital. Details coming up. Also, the U.S. Treasury Department has designated Russia's Wagner Group as a significant transnational criminal organization. And Burkina Faso says it's asking France to pull its troops out within a month. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. One of Southern Africa's most prominent human rights lawyer was killed in Mbabeni, the capital of Iswatini, formerly known as Swaziland. Tulani Maseko was a chairperson of the multi-stakeholder forum, which has been calling for Africa's last absolute monarchy to become a democracy. The Iswatini government says Maseko was shot dead Saturday night by unknown criminals. But as Darren Taylor reports, many in Southern Africa are blaming the government for the apparent assassination. Maseko was killed just hours after King Mswati III suggested during a speech to army regiments that mercenaries would deal with those wanting democracy. The 52-year-old lawyer certainly was one of those, raising his voice since he was a student against government abuses and the king's absolute power. Maseko was a key mover behind the Swazi Multi-Stakeholder Forum, a collection of political organizations and civil society groups demanding democracy. Zimbabwean academic Ibo Mandaza knew Maseko and has been in contact with people close to the slain lawyer's family. He was killed in his home, in the presence of his wife and kids. Very, very tragic indeed. It is well known, uh, no secret that he has been on the list of the people that the state has been after for a long time. But as Swatini government spokesperson Alpheus Ngomalo disassociated the state from what he called a heinous act. The government of the Kingdom of Eswatini takes every life very seriously, including the life of Tulane Masego. He has never been at any given point a person of special interest to the state because Tulane believed in engagement, he believed in negotiations, He believed in resolving national political matters through dialogue. But in 2014, the state charged Maseko after he criticized the judiciary. He was found guilty of contempt of court and sentenced to two years in prison. When he was released, the lawyer continued his activism, launching a court bid in 2018 to try to prevent the king from changing the country's name. Maseko argued the cost involved should be used to improve the lives of the poor. King Mswati ignored the court process and changed the name anyway. 
Mandaza says, in this context, and given the growing threat that Maseko's pro-democracy alliance posed to the monarchy and its government, it's logical to link the state to the killing. There is evidence that the hitmen were state-related. And the reference by some, including uh, witnesses who escaped into South Africa from Eswatini overnight, we have to conclude the obvious, that Tulani is a victim of the horrid politics that characterize some of our societies in South Africa. Nkomalo insists the state won't rest until the killers are brought to book. But Maseko's friend and colleague, advocate Sibusiso Nshlabatsi, describes the Swazi security forces as tools of the king and his government. It seems to me that the priorities of the police are yet shifted. In the main, they are focusing on the political angles in Swaziland instead of focusing in combating crime. It does not seem to me that government will use any of its resources to pursue this investigation. Mandaza says the killing of Maseko puts pressure on Eswatini's nearest neighbor, South Africa, the Southern African Development Community and the African Union to intervene. I think it illustrates we have in our midst, in our region, two societies in particular in which any opposition, opposition movements are regarded as enemies. And what's happening in Eswatini is yet another illustration. Uh, the kind of stuff that we also see in Zimbabwe. Nklabatsi says if the government and the king think that Maseko's death is going to stop or even slow demands for democratic reform, they're very wrong. Rather, he says, activists will use his friend's martyrdom to strengthen their resolve. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and International Monetary Fund Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva are in Zambia as the latest example of worries on how China and other creditors are handling the African country's debt. Zambia has sought debt relief from China and private sector creditors, but with little sign of progress. Yellen told Reuters en route to Zambia she supported the roundtable as a forum for discussing general principles of debt relief. Yellen is in Africa as a follow-up to the U.S.-Africa summit last month. Kenya's Ministry of Agriculture has defended the killing of millions of invasive quilia birds in rice growing regions of the country. The ministry says the birds are destroying hectares of crops and pesticide they are using to kill the birds is safe. But environmentalists say the state should try other methods to control the birds before restoring to extermination. Victoria Munga reports from Nairobi. Rice has become a third most important cereal produced in Kenya after maize and wheat, with at least 70% of land under rice cultivation, according to national data. However, a recent invasion of migratory quilea birds that feed on rice is threatening the crop. So the state is killing the birds by spraying pesticides. The director of Kenya's Crop Protection Services, Colin Marango, says the birds have been eradicated in four regions they have invaded since August 2022. We only do it precisely where the birds sleep. And the reason why even in this at night to ensure that at that time there are no even uh, bees. These are sleep at that time. That's why it is done at night. Precisely with a drone. 
That is, you place the chemical where it is required. Kennedy Sinogo is a rice farmer in Kenya's Kisumu region. He says more than 120 hectares of his farm have been destroyed. He says his family's efforts to keep the birds away have been futile and that the operation to spray them is easing the situation. He says they have to be killed because they are becoming too much. They are breeding a lot. We farmers are having a hard time. Right now, a family has to camp on the farm to try and guard their rice. Environmentalists describe the method of controlling the birds as toxic. Rafael Capillo, a professor of environment and earth science at Kenya's Maseno University, told VOA that widespread use of pesticides is contaminating the environment. We should use mechanisms for scaring away the birds but not eliminating by killing or by use of chemicals. In the past, culturally, we have had methods of uh, scaring away birds, and uh, sometimes we use uh, noise. Aquilia bird can eat 10 grams of grain in one day, according to the UN Food and Agricultural Organization. In 2021, FAO researchers estimated that crops worth 50 million U.S. dollars are lost annually to the birds in Kenya. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehi Suhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. The U.S. Treasury Department has designated the Wagner Group, a Russian private military company, as a significant transitional criminal organization and imposed additional sanctions on the group. The group has been aiding Russia's military in its ongoing invasion of Ukraine and bolstering Moscow's efforts to grow its presence in Africa and elsewhere. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Wagner poses a transcontinental threat with an ongoing pattern of serious criminal activity. The White House has increasingly expressed alarm about Wagner's growing involvement in the Ukraine war. The Kremlin said today that the designation of Wagner as a transnational criminal organization is unlikely to affect Russia or the group itself. Cameroonian journalists are calling for an independent investigation after popular radio reporter Martinez Zogo was found dead in the capital Yaounde. Zogo was abducted last week after saying he could be killed for doing an investigation into corruption cases among government officials. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaounde, Cameroon. <laughs> We've seen this incredible scale-up of access to treatment for people living with HIV. And what we have realized, have been slow to realize, that is that a lot of that treatment has gone to adults living with HIV. It's absolutely critical. We've made tremendous progress, but we're seeing now a treatment gap. So um, despite the progress, um, we're, we're seeing many critical gaps, and, and we're seeing that that progress has been uneven. 
If you drill down further, it seems that women are not seeking treatment as much as men. Why are women not getting treatment? So when we look at East and Southern Africa, which carries the global burden of the HIV epidemic, you know, there are a number of This music, titled Journalist in Danger by Burkina Faso artist Alpha Blondie, is played repeatedly on several radio stations in Yaoundé and Douala, the Central African State's economic hub. Blondie released the album after the December 13, 1998 assassination of Nobel Zongo, a Burkina Bay investigative reporter. Today, the song's message resonates in Cameroon as radio stations broadcast the music in memory of Martinez Zogo, a popular radio host. Zogo's mutilated body was found Sunday in Sua, a neighborhood near the capital, five days after he was abducted by unidentified Icelands. Almost all media organizations in Cameroon on Monday condemned the killing of Zogo, who they describe as a whistleblower and courageous reporter fighting graft and the mismanagement of state funds. Patrick Moore, a reporter with the Garden Post newspaper, says he is sure Zogu was killed by people he had accused of stealing state funds. It's rather unfortunate that journalists have become targets, especially by politicians and, and people who think that journalists should not exercise their duties as they're supposed to do. They expect that journalists should operate according to their whims. Zogo was director of Amplitude FM, a private radio station in the capital, and ran a daily French language program that examined social issues and held discussions on topics such as good governance. Zogo said he had documents to prove that some senior state functionaries have stolen several million dollars from state coffers since 2013. Zogo said he had forwarded proof of what he called a high wave of embezzlement and corruption involving a local media organization to Cameroon's president, Paul Bia. He said he was receiving death threats daily. Vous allez seulement me tuer. Vous n'avez qu'une seule chose à faire, c'est de finir avec moi. Vous comprenez? In this audio excerpt from his program two weeks ago, Zogo says he has information that some people involved in corruption want to kill him. He says he is ready to die, but that his killers will not live forever. Zogo says corruption is rife and Cameroon's president, Paul Bia, is not doing much to punish officials who take money that belongs to the people. VOA could not independently verify if Zogo sent documents on alleged corruption to President Bia through officials of Cameroon's Ministry of Justice as he said during his radio program. Cameroonian journalist and activist Jean Bruno Tanyi says the killing of Zogo indicates that the press is under threat in Cameroon. He says Zogo's killing has confirmed to the world that Cameroon is a brutal state managed by people who operate as mafia groups. 
He says Zogo was wrong to think that the government would protect him, support his fight for corrupt officials to face justice and restore funds stolen from Cameroon's public treasury. Tanyi says rights groups and journalism associations call for an independent investigation to find Zogo's killers. Cameroon's journalist trade union called on reporters to be careful but encouraged them to continue coverage of corruption and shed light on undemocratic practices they say are becoming rampant. In a press release Monday, Cameroon government spokesperson René Emmanuel Sadi said early investigations indicate Zogo was tortured by his killers. Sadi said an autopsy and investigation are ongoing to trace the perpetrators. Sadi describes the killing as barbaric, unacceptable, and despicable. Cameroonian journalists say that media freedoms are threatened under country's authoritarian rule. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. It's been 20 years since efforts to prevent the transmission of HIV-AIDS from mother to baby during pregnancy and birth began in a big way in sub-Saharan Africa. But about 130,000 babies are still becoming infected each year because of logistical problems like drug shortages or the stigma attached to AIDS that makes women reluctant to seek tests or treatment. Anurita Baines, global head of HIV-AIDS programs for the UN Children's Agency UNICEF, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam that although there's been tremendous progress made over the last three decades and 76% of adults now get treatment in sub-Saharan Africa, only half of infected children are being treated. We've seen this incredible scale-up of access to treatment for people living with HIV. And what we have realized, have been slow to realize, that is that a lot of that treatment has gone to adults living with HIV. It's absolutely critical. We've made tremendous progress, but we're seeing now a treatment gap. So um, despite the progress, um, we're, we're seeing many critical gaps, and, and we're seeing that that progress has been uneven. If you drill down further, it seems that women are not seeking treatment as much as men. Why are women not getting treatment? So when we look at East and Southern Africa, which carries the global burden of the HIV epidemic, you know, there are a number of complex reasons that uh, women, men, children are not able to access treatment. So what we do see is that actually women have more interaction with health facilities, so they do seek treatment. And that's why we've seen this tremendous progress in prevention of transmission of HIV from pregnant women living with HIV to their children. However, um, it's not as simple as just, you know, going to the clinic down the street and letting being tested and getting treatment. So we know about stigma and discrimination. We know that sometimes there are very um, sort of a practical logistical problems to accessing the clinic or seeing a nurse or a doctor that might include having money for transportation to get to the clinic. Um, and we know that there are a number of things that drive the inequalities and contribute to the barriers, gender inequality being one of them, economic hardship, not feeling empowered and confident enough to disclose to your partner that you're not feeling well or that you've been tested and you're living with HIV and need to be on treatment. 
Um, I think as well, you know, we can't we can't forget that we're just coming out of COVID-19. And, you know, I, I spent um, two years during COVID-19 in a small country in Southern Africa and particularly in Southern Africa, COVID hit us really hard and we had very strong lockdown and you just could not get to a clinic or a facility for treatment or care, even if you wanted to, or even if you had the means to. Now, for children, it's even more complicated where children rely on their caregivers to take them to a clinic or to see a nurse. Um, you know, we've got the additional piece where um, the, the actual um, diagnostics, the testing, the formulations for children are more complex. They're not as easily available. And we have seen a lot of disruptions in supply chain. We've seen stockouts. So just getting to a clinic and seeing whether the medicines are there, um, we're seeing that gap. And all of this contributes to the situation that we're in. What about babies that are um, breastfed? You know, you've got these breastfeeding mothers and you find that they are testing positive. They're HIV positive. If they're getting treatment, then are the by virtue of the breastfeeding, are the babies getting treated? So one of the incredible things in the HIV response in the last uh, decades is really um, a lot of uh, amazing science and new evidence that very quickly um, gets applied and translated into evidence to inform programs. And what we've learned is that if pregnant women living with HIV have access to antiretroviral therapy and take their medicine regularly, what we call being retained in care, um, they're not going to transmit the virus during pregnancy, during labor, or during breastfeeding. That was uh, Anorita Baines, Global Head of UNICEF's HIV-AIDS program. She was speaking to my colleague, Carol Van Dam from New York. And with that, we wrap up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Jackson and Fungani, and our engineer, Al Santos, thanks for choosing The Voice of America. a global health issue with multiple concerns along with social and economic consequences. Worldwide adolescent birth rates are decreasing, but Africa continues to have twice the global health rates. This week on Our Voices, we'll look at the contributing factors for Africa's high adolescent birth rate. Join the conversation this Wednesday at 1900 UTC on VOA Africa. What's up, Africa? It's Jackson Vungani. And I'm Nadia Sami in Cape Town. Can I be upfront with you? That's exactly what Nadia and I plan to do every Wednesday at 17.30 UTC. Upfront looks at issues that affect you. Since the world is moving at a faster rate, there's need to have a major computer. Interesting news. Canadian man was sentenced for drunk driving after being pulled over in his mother's motorized wheelchair. <laughs> 35-year-old man was fined and placed on probation. And of course, music. Oh, no clouds in my stones. Entertainment. 
celebrities, you name it, we'll talk about it. And of course, we love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and comments. Our email address is upfront at voanews.com. So don't forget to check us out every Wednesday at 17.30 UTC on The Voice of America. Sporty holiday greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA's Sonny Young, the host of the Sunny Side of Sports. As we approach the end of 2022, VOA wants to give you, our loyal listeners, the opportunity to wish your loved ones a happy new year. Call us on our WhatsApp number, 202 202- 258-3076. Leave a brief message and listen for it right here on VOA. The number again, 202-258-3076. Let VOA help you bring cheer and blessings to friends and family by just calling.